Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I have a huge, huge um, place in my heart for Madison and think the world of her, not only her potential, but also I relate to so much of her and her personality. I've gone through my life with having a very small amount of very, very close relationship and have developed one with her. everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. For our guest this week, we went back to the well to old reliable Lindsay Davenport, a favored guest here, a favored guest among many of you guys. It had been a while, almost an entire year since she'd done this podcast. So we, uh, we roped her back in. Predictably, she was terrific. Lindsay, of course, is a Hall of Famer, former Grand Slam champion, tennis channel analyst, um, she is also now coaching Madison Keys, and it was in that capacity that we caught up with her in the lovely city of Charleston, where she is uh, coaching Madison at the, um, the inauguration of clay court season. Lindsay and I talk about all sorts of things. Coaching and Serena Williams, state of the WTA, whether or not Roger Federer ought to play the French Open. That seems to be a, a hot topic in tennis land. We talk about whether tennis players ought to be chummy with their colleagues. Great conversation, as always. You can't go wrong. We bring her on now from Charleston, South Carolina, the lovely Lindsay Davenport. You and Lin-Manuel Miranda are the two hardest guests to get. It puts you oh in some God. pretty fast company. Stop it. Stop it. Um, I don't know where to begin. Have you been on the road this whole time or no? No, we did Miami from the studio in L.A. and okay. then um, been in Charleston for whatever five, six days now, I guess. Little uh, little clay adjustment. Um, yeah, the it's a great uh, tournament though. Great it's tournament. been fun yeah. to um, maybe showcase. Like Tennis Channel's been showcasing it since day one, and it's been great. And the players have really been amazingly supportive and coming for the desk and doing interviews. So I think it's good to show um, the country this great tournament. It looks good on TV too. 
You know, it is. Court it's amazing. Nice, nice stadium, nice surroundings. It totally. And it was even over like quality weekends, the place was packed and they had all these events for kids. And, you know, we don't have many events anymore in the States and we have very few all women uh, tournaments left. And when I played, there was a bunch. Now right. there's not. And it's nice to see it um, just so well received by the community here as well. I'm going to go off on a total tangent. The first all women's tournament I ever covered. I, I was doing V. I was writing, you know, I was whatever twenty, whatever. I was writing that book, and I saw a match. I was like, "This something's weirds going on here." Do you remember the match in Amelia Island when the court wasn't the right dimensions? Yes, all the double faults. I think you in, played there. I, yeah, you kept double faulting. I, I played there for years. One of my favorite tournaments um, in Amelia Island, and to this day, I still am like, "How did the players not figure it out?" I can't remember. It was like. It was an American. Three feet. Three feet. Wasn't it Jenny Hopkins? It wasn't even. It was like Jenny Hopkins and Paolo Suarez or something. And it it wasn't even close. I mean, it looked like a squash court. Yep. And they both had something like 20 double faults. Yeah, exactly. Neither neither player known (laughs) for having a a double faulting problem. It's crazy. Yeah, I remember that. All right. We've we've come a long way since then. No, I think it was was right around this time of year, and it was like a nice clay event. Same kind of thing. You'd stay in a villa. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, So we are – no, so I was saying they had me do a thing for Tennis Channel, sort of summing up Q1, the first quarter in in women's tennis. It's It's been a weird one. Would you agree with that? It has been a weird one, and um, the most amazing story I think that we have has been the reemergence of Venus and her play, her results, getting to a Grand Slam final again after many people didn't think that was possible. And the the thought was if it wasn't going to happen, it would be at Wimbledon, and here she was able to do it in Australia, and also a Grand Slam that she never won. Right, right couple times at the U.S. Open, five times at Wimbledon, but uh, it hasn't historically necessarily been her best slam, and to be able to do that, and she's been solid all year, and in the absence of a player, um, Angelique Kerber, who people were giving me grief for being hard on her in Miami, I simply said she has not played like a number one player. I believe her record against the top 30 at that time, right? (laughs) At the time, um, it was 0-8 against the top 30. I believe something like that. And there hasn't been a player who has emerged as a number one. Serena's played two tournaments, and who knows when we'll see her again. It's been a time of opportunity for sure. I would would add that Venus Venus really backed it up. I mean, she had this great run in Australia, and then she goes, I think it was at St. Petersburg. Is that right? Yeah. And Still, I think, just exhausted and mentally yeah, exactly. and physically there. But um, quarters of Indian Wells, semifinals of Miami. Exactly. Um, lost a heartbreaker in Charleston to Siegmund. Had a couple match points. First match on clay. I mean, right, not a big right, deal. Right. But for sure. I, and she's got to be thinking bigger and better things for the mid part of the year, starting in about June. Her best time of year, the grass, and then the kind of the quicker hardcore tournaments. Uh, I'd be pretty stoked if I was in Venus's camp. It's funny because a lot of times players get get older, and by the U.S. Open, there's that that time in the season, the U.S. Open's really the last hurrah, and then they're they're pretty beat up. Venus has been interesting. She's she's sort of been a slow starter, and her her grass court play is terrific, and she keeps it going in the summer. V- Venus, uh, remember last year, two years ago or last year, when she uh, she had one of the best falls in women's tennis history. 
Yeah, I think uh, one in Wuhan. She made this great run to finish the year in the top ten. Um, I, I think that's a time of year of in the fall. There is so much opportunity right. because right. such a high percentage of players are spent and just can't mentally push through those last few weeks and months. Andy Murray did a fantastic job of that last fall and went on that great winning streak um, from the U.S. Open through the rest of the year. A lot um, of points up there. But, I, saw, I saw Nadal... Nadal will play China. I mean, I think players are getting hip to that, and when they usually shut it down after the U.S. Open, I think a lot of players are realizing you leave a lot of points on the table yep. when yep. you take uh, take the rest of September and October off. Um, yeah, unless you're Serena. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then uh, so Serena's got her own schedule, and uh, it's well well earned. Um, well, keep keep going on Kerber. I mean, I, I wrote this week. I said I don't know if this is she's having a hard time adjusting to being number one or there's something personal. I, I just think she she is what she is as a player. Last year she sort of put it together in, in a in a great way, and this year we're seeing the, the old regression to the mean. And I, I don't think in a vacuum you look at her game and say that's a, that's a number one player you're watching right there. I think a, a lot went right, and a lot of that is to her credit in 2016, and I think I, I, I sort of have a sense she's, she's finding her level now. I'm, I'm not sure this is a crushing disappointment that she's not – winning every other tournament. Yeah, I think you're completely right. Like, you look at her game, and it's not overwhelming. Historically, it hasn't really been the type of game that a lot of number ones have played. So for her to play her best tennis and to be super successful, she's got to be ultra fit, which she obviously is still. So then it begs the question of where is she mentally and emotionally? Um, All those things have to be going perfectly, and they were last year for her to have that type of success. So it can always be a question of, is her confidence just low? Does she need more matches to work her way through and get that belief back? Does she need some time away to refresh? Does she, is there something off court going on? Those are the questions that we love to ask about players that we'll never know really the answers to. Um, but it has to be up in, in her mind right now. And her team right now, I mean, she's playing a tournament in Monterey, obviously trying to work through some of those issues in match situations to try and get that belief back. How much, um, this is a crass question, and the obvious answer is it varies from player to player, but how, how much does money start entering a player's thinking when they're, particularly at that stage in their career, number one? I think less when you get to one, right? I, I don't know. I think I then know. you have all these opportunities and last year with prize money. And I think your goals change when you get to one or two, it all of a sudden becomes much more result driven and the titles are what you then crave. And, and you figure in your mind does really going to that exhibition. Is that going to help me win the U S open? Nope. Okay. Then I'm not doing it. And, And so I think it, it, the opportunities, there seem to be more of them and they present themselves, but I think you've got to be pretty picky and choosy when you get up there so you can maintain that level of playing like a number one and having that same mentality at the big tournaments. And and not, um, no, I mean, I'm heartened to hear you say that because I think crassly other people would say, geez, who knows how long I'm going to stick here as long as Exhibition X or Tournament Y is, is going to pay whatever, $400,000, $250,000 for me to show up. Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, you don't just, you know, you in women's tennis, like I think Serena wouldn't let anything get in the way of her and her quest to win majors. Sharapova has always been super disciplined in that regard of my performance on court is the most important thing. Um, 
we've had some other number one players maybe, yeah, overplay and, and try and take advantage of when they got to the top, but um, you never like to see that. I hope that's not the case with Kerber. I don't know how much she plays outside the tournaments and the, her exhibition schedule, uh, but she seems pretty motivated. I think for her right now, it's more she's just lost her way and belief a little bit. That that second every time I see that second serve, yeah, I, sort of say, I wait every and every time after the off season for whatever reason. The last two or three seasons, I've watched her in Australia intently, looking at her serve and been like, "Darn it, she yeah. just went another off season without without really They're working on it up, or changing yeah. it." Because yeah. fundamentally, it looks like just if a couple little switches um, would really help. But players obviously at the top, it, it's hard to convince them to do that. Well. It worked last year. I won two slams and got to the final of Wimbledon. Why would I change? I was thinking uh, we we keep we always talk about the the Federer impact and Federer's trickle down and he's such a gentleman. So everybody else kind of gets in line. I wonder how many players say, "My God, this guy's in his mid thirties, and his whole philosophy on the backhand side has changed from where it was in say 2012." Maybe it's not too late to tinker with some things. Yeah, it's fantastic. And so many players aren't open to that. You know, they kind of close off and I just want to do with what I have and I'm too scared to make changes. He's remarkable. And I think part of the reason why everyone is in such awe of him is because we can't really remember a similar case where a player had such a big weakness. I was going to say, as if he needed more ways to differentiate himself. Can you think of another athlete at this career saying, and it's not just like, oh, he's back to winning again. I mean, he's playing different tennis than he was when he was 31 or 32 years old. And a different mindset of, yeah, right, oh, right. I'm going to go after this backhand, not, okay, I'm just going to chip, I'm going to chip, maybe I can get a forehand here. It's like, no way, I'm going to win it hitting a backhand winner or backhand drive. Um, doesn't matter that it's out of my comfortable contact point. Uh, I'm going to do this. And it, it kind of it worked for him in the fifth set of Australia, and he has not looked back since in that final against Nadal. The, uh, if I told you... Uh, not only would Federer beat Nadal three times in the first, you know, 90 days of 2017, but Federer would now seem to have this mental edge over Nadal, the one guy who who is his kryptonite. Um, I don't know how many people saw that plot twist. Uh, no, plot and, twist and even after Australia, I, I still was of the mindset of everything kind of fell into place for Roger there. He beat, um, you know, in route to the final, he beat quality players, but he beat players that he's, had a lot of belief over in the past, you know, no Murray didn't have to go through Murray or Novak. Right. Like, okay. The courts were so fast. He was so pumped up. He like the, that extra day, you know, yeah, he, and he got... it, like things really lined up. Like, can he do it again? I was like, gosh, I don't know. And then after the sunshine double, you're like, nothing's going to hold him back. <laughs> now, <laughs> but, now it's like, uh... it's crazy. I, and I was guilty of that. And, and I think I, it just didn't seem I just wasn't sure he was going to be able to keep it up. And then you hear him talk after Miami of, nope, I'm going to shut it down again. He's not worried about, oh, I've got to keep this momentum going. I've right, got to, He's right. like, nope, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to get hungry again. I want to go work on my game and make another strong push. It's like you're like, yeah, he's going to win three majors this year. <laughs> we were. Uh, I was talking to uh, – last week's podcast was with Robbie Koenig. Um, we were talking about the French Open. Where, where, do you, uh, where do you stand on that? If you're him, do you play it? Uh, I – I don't think so, but I don't know. Last year, do we remember that he flew to Paris for two days early the week before? Yeah, he looked at the weather map. 
Yep, and he had one hit, I think, out on court one or court two. There was some video of him. He was like, no, the back didn't feel perfect. It was freezing cold. He's like, yeah, I'm out of here. I think it might be something similar where he might just see where he feels in mid-May. Um, but I <laughs> definitely wouldn't put a strong push to it. I, you have this. You have the case he did win the first major of the year. Does he believe he can win? If he does, you are like, whatever you want to do to get ready for it. But um, – I, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't play again until after. And then just said, grass is where I'm, you know, yeah, for, for the last 10 the hard, years. Yeah. yeah, practice on hardcore, save his body, um, take some time right now to get healthy again. Because obviously, even though we didn't outwardly see a major injury, no question he's beat up after all those matches of Indian Wells and Miami, just physically and mentally. Um, take some time now, no pressure to go practice, and let's just see where he is in a few weeks. Not bad. That's that's a nice luxury for the previous Grand Slam winner. Pretty awesome. Uh, so let me let me ask you a um, let me ask you a coaching question. You're you're yep. back with back with Madison Keys, and um, I, I think you know you you guys the the first time you you couldn't have left on better terms. So it's not like you had the fist fight on the practice court. But I I feel like we see this a lot of pl- coach player relationships that sort of you you have these reunions. And uh, you know some some players we've seen even do two and three times with with the same coach. What, what's it like, kind of getting back together? Um, I think for everybody, it's totally different, and um, sometimes you get a better sense of when you're away of what you really liked or what you didn't like, and you're more open to making changes. Um, I it, in my particular case, it's a hundred percent fine and stayed close. Uh, through the majority of last year and um, kind of knew exactly what was going on. So there was no big shock, but I think right now there's just not in, in women's tennis, there's just maybe not just tons of options. And a lot of people haven't emerged um, in that coaching uh, list or whatever. You see a lot of the same coaches kind of come back and try it with different players and, um, I think if you do find something that you're really comfortable with and uh, the player is happy that a lot is said for that. What do you think that is? Why, why do you th- I mean, we, we did a board last year, if you remember this piece, and there are guys who have literally coached half the players in the top 20. I, mean, yeah, I think, I I think Thomas, Thomas Hogstead had six of the players in the top 10 at one point. I mean, what, what do you think that is, that there isn't this, uh, doesn't seem like there's this terrifically deep pool of coaches? I know. I don't get it. I know there's so many people in this sport who know so much and so many people that I talk to and love to get advice from don't go down that that career path. But I don't know. Some of the lifestyle can be difficult. The traveling, maybe committing so much to one player and one job. Sometimes the job security um, comes into a lot of people's minds of is it better to be a college coach or, you know, some other kind of job in tennis. Um, certainly that can be the case. Some people love the challenge of trying to get one player to be the best possible version of themselves. Um, but I guess there's not that many of them. What about you? I mean, you're, you're, you're not doing this so you can spend Thursday, as much as we love South Carolina, you're not doing this so you spend uh, a weekday on the opposite side of the country from your, from your family. What's, what, what fee, what's being fed in you doing this? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm fortunate that I don't do anything that I don't want to do. Um, so, or I should say maybe selfish in that regard. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I have an, a huge 
huge um, place in my heart for Madison and think the world of her, not only her potential, but also I relate to so much of her and her personality um, that happy to help her. And she knows that's always the case. I'm happy to help her as long as she feels it's helping her or as long as it's needed. I don't want to coach anybody else. I'm never going to be on that board you were just talking about <laughs> working with five or six players. Um, I've gone through my life with having um, a very small amount of very, very close relationships and have developed one with her and love the challenge of trying to help her. And obviously coming back from surgery and after having her first big year finishing in the top 10, there's obviously a lot of pressure on her and mental stress from surgery and just doing my best to kind of help her through that, that period. How do you um, assess your durability as a player? Assess hers? No, yours. Because I, I, I feel like, you know, you obviously, you, you, you left the sport and then you came back, but I, I always thought of you as a, a fairly healthy player. Mentally or physically? Physically, <laughs> physically, physically. This is a, this is a lead up. This is the lead up to a question about what do you what do you do when you have all the tools, but sometimes as hard as you train, and it's not for lack of effort. It just some players' bodies are better cut out for this drill than yeah. others. You know, mine got more vulnerable as my career went on, and I probably got too stubborn on how I wanted to train and wasn't maybe as open-minded as I should have been about trying new things and stuff that might have helped me physically. Um, But it is true. I mean, some people exhaust every possible avenue, and it just doesn't happen. And then you get these great stories of Andy Murray, who, you know, goes checks off every box on his list. Have I, you know, done nutrition? Have I done the off right, train? Right, Have I done right. the, you know, and, and it all comes together. I see, I think Joe Kunt is another example of that where not someone three years ago we said was probably, Oh, top 10 player, grand slam potential, but she's just worked so hard to try and get there. So I think as a pro player today, you have to look at all aspects of it and try and, and, get a grasp on the mental side, the shot side, how to play under pressure, everything, and give it your best shot, and just hope that it all kind of just falls into place and happens with a lot of hard work. I, I always wonder for players like, like Raonich or, or Nishikori who just, I wonder how that impacts them during a match. And I guess at some a level lot. only they can answer it. But, but surely, I mean, you know, it's 4-2. It's Am I really going to go scramble to that ball in the corner Definitely. And, you know, the last like four or five years of my career was always dealing with um, injuries in some regard and always like it's like my mind would go to shoot. It's three all in the third quarterfinal Friday. I'm going to have to play through the weekend. That's what I'm talking about. No, totally. But I'm a crazy person mentally. So you you know that. So I'm not I'm not sure that that enters every player's mind. It definitely entered mine. And even in terms of scheduling, like, oh, I don't want to play Friday night because semifinals are during the day. And if I win, it's going to be less time for me to recover. And then you just expend all this energy worrying about our injury is going to come. So how do I guard against that? And all of that is never perfect. You don't get the sense that Roger really is, is ever too concerned about that. Um, no, the Roger stories are unbelievable with that. Um, then again, when you get to a certain point and you know you're getting night sessions, it probably helps. I mean, you, you saw Roger in Australia, and you pretty much could have told you every single session when he would be playing. 
Yeah, and and then the opposite in Indian Wells in Miami, where it seemed like he was like, nah, I don't really want to play at night unless I absolutely, absolutely have to. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. That that Federer Nadal match was, I think yep, it was like two, day two, two thirty and, in the afternoon, right? Yep. So who knows why? I mean, it was you know in the desert. We all know it gets a little colder. Maybe he didn't want to play then. But um, I would think that for a player like Raonic and Nishikori, it does weigh on them, and it does weigh on their belief as the years go by that these injuries keep taking them out of big opportunities. Can we, uh, non-tennis tangent for 90 seconds. Big little lies. Have we talked about that? No. Oh, forget it then. But you know I'm not like a TV show watcher. I know. I, that, so. This is our, our like running gag, gig that you don't do a uh, running gag. You, I, uh, I, you don't do binge watching. I'm I trying to find you a show. But- I know. I'm married to a, a husband that doesn't believe in, like, electronics for the kids and stuff. So I'm like, wait, dude, can't we turn the TV on and watch, like, the Super Bowl? <laughs> it's like, oh. So I know. I got out of that habit, but I'm, maybe maybe I'll get back into it in a couple of years I keep, when the kids I get keep older. Looking, uh, I keep looking for shows that you can, like, pound away on planes. And I came up with Big Little Lies, which is, um, okay. Which okay. is great. It's, it's, it's California. It. It's, it's like, raising kids. Yeah. It's great. Oh, okay. Maybe on the way to like the French Open. I need to talk to you. I need to talk with your husband. Um, so, some someone asked me a. Uh, I think we moved on past wildcard talk, but someone asked me a Maria question that I thought was actually quite interesting. Um, yep. And it was about her relationships and lack of relationships with her colleagues and how irrelevant that should be to the discussion, uh, which, which I agree with. Um, whether or not, you know. Cornet and who you know whether or not players think she's nice and think she's arrogant and think she's moody. Who who cares? I mean that that should not be uh, part of this. But how do you a sum up kind of the collegiality in the women's game right now? And how much of it as a player is that something that even entered your thinking? That's interesting. Yeah, it, in this sport, it's so different than the team sports. Is you don't have to get along with anybody if that's what you think helps you play better. And we've seen that historically. Um, I think Justine Enna went on a period for a few years where her coach Carlos didn't want her to talk to anybody. She got very quiet and, and a little, you know, less outgoing to everybody. Maria was always like that. Steffi was in and out of there so fast that she didn't really <laughs> sure. talk to a lot of people either. Um, but th- there's absolutely no problem with that. But then you can't, and this was the thing with Maria, then you can't go out there looking for sympathy. You know, if you're going to choose to walk that path, you've got to just walk it and own it and know that then if something does happen, you aren't going to get a lot of sympathy from the locker room. How um, is there? Do you feel like there's this sort of a sense of obligation? These are people I'm, you know, in, in a sense and part of a league with at some level. These are my colleagues. Or do you think there's a sense of I don't want to get too close to these people who I are mean, basically we're all competing for the same finite you know, goods and services. I mean, listen, you're asking me my opinion. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. You can't look at someone in the eyes and say, hello, how are you? And then not go want to beat them. But I was obviously raised a lot differently. You know, it was like, if you lose a tennis match, it doesn't matter. That's your own fault, not (laughs) your opponent. So I've never really bought into, they're the enemy. Don't talk to them. You could show weakness if you're friendly. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. Um, but I know that some people have and do, and I, that's their their way of going about it. Um, but it's a lot, it's just a lot lonelier and a lot less fun in your job. But 
I guess if it makes you more successful and that's what makes you really happy, then then that's great. You can choose to do that in the sport. I've heard that a lot from coaches and from fathers. I don't think players organically say, you know what, I'm going to be my own little venture here and I'm not going to say hi to anyone. I, I've heard that a few times and it's always been a coach and or a father that's tried to impart on the female player that she needs to be less chummy. Just, just yeah, I think you could probably look back and see the players that have maybe chosen that have maybe, I don't want to say overbearing, but like a, a constant presence in their life that makes a lot of their decisions probably from a young age. I, I think you could probably say that. Where, uh, Mary, we, we talked about this a bunch in Indian Wells, um, and you're you're in an awkward position as both I, I always call you a, as media member, but also as, as one of the principals. Where where are you with um, this on-court coaching? And when you go out there to talk to Madison and you are suddenly fumbling with a microphone, how does that change <laughs> well, the dynamic? Well, that's just it. I, I feel like, okay, so why is the coaching there? And as Mary described it to me, it's purely there for TV. If, it's, if it was truly there for the players, it obviously there wouldn't be microphones. You know, because you you can't really say too much. It's like you have to just go with, you know, kind of organic stuff. You can't get too serious. The player can't be that open. Like a player doesn't want to see out there like, oh, my gosh, I can't hit my forehand up the line. Yeah, exactly. I can't do it. You know, exactly. it's like they're never going to say that. So it seems to me that the rule sh- should be changed. And we talked about it a lot in Miami, that unfortunate incident with Garbina and Sam. Right. He gets like a warning for coaching. She tells him to be quiet and then wants him to come on court. And he refuses to go on court for the coaching. Then when he comes out another changeover later, she's crying and apologizing. Like all that stuff should never be public to anybody. And so I kind weren't of you also, I watched that. I'm like, uh, don't, don't you gonna have backhands and forehands to be hitting? Like that's, that's an awful know, lot of drama Mary, for a match. That's the thing, but there is drama that goes through the course of matches, and it was going on in my generation. It goes on, that, but it, it, it normally isn't then broadcast to everybody, and that's, that's where I think this, this whole thing is missing the mark. Interesting in talking to Madison about it, she's like, you know, it's been around since I turned pro. So it's much, you know, and once I heard that, it kind That's of like made more sense. Yeah. She's used to it. Like right. this is her, her whole way. I, I played for one year with it and I played for 18 years without it. So for me, it's like, oh, it seems silly. For this generation, though, it's not. It's been there for them always. So I think either everyone has to start just this is the way it goes. I, I just think if you're going to want to make a difference as a coach, you got to take the microphones out of it. Right. And I hope that the WTA considers that. But again, from what it was described to me when it first started, it was more for TV than anything else. And you never want to make decisions that affect the players when, if it's for TV. I don't think that's the right way. I also, my, my little 30-second riff is, you know, there's, there's a women's hockey league, and I know nothing about them. And I've never been to a game, but I know that they had a dispute over wages and they were threatening to go on strike. And most people know Hope Solo as the the woman with explicit photos online who had a domestic violence charge. I feel like when women's sports make news too often, it's for negative reasons. I couldn't tell you anything about who won the matches that day, but my social media feed was filled with this snippet of of Sam Sumick and Garbina having this, you know, expletive-filled fight. Um, yeah, it was just, just, it was really bad, like optics, right, to see right, right. this Grand Slam champion in tears begging for forgiveness. 
of something that was said in the heat of her match in a heat of intensity. And then she just didn't come off great, like in that position, begging forgiveness from a coach that was, you know, all of that was horrible. And that's the kind of stuff that should be considered when they think it's a great idea to mic players in their most intense moments in some of their biggest matches, obviously not in the slams, but, and see then the emotions that come out of it. It's not good. Who, who are losing when the men aren't doing it? Right. Anyway. um, So, all right, I want you to, uh, I'm going to dismiss you. Go go eat, like, shrimp and grits. But real quick, French, <laughs> French uh, you got to pick two French Open champions on uh, April 7th. Who are you picking? Uh, I'm going with Rafa. Really? I am. Oh, good. Um, I think, gosh, I think the women's field is so wide open. I really do. I'm not, I don't think Serena's going to play. I think if Serena was going to play, she would be playing in Rome. Right. Um, so in my mind, I'm not picking her because I actually don't think she will physically be there. So <laughs> not picking her to lose. I'm picking her not to play. Um, fascinated to see Maria through the clay season, um, see if she could be picked. I really think that Halep is going to turn it all around. Um, really? Oh, I do. A, that's a player. I, I don't know where she is now. Oh, I know. I, I, after, I know I was bummed when she ended up losing in Miami, but she had some good wins going. I think she's trying to build back up after an injury. Um, I, I think it's wide open on the women's side. There's a, uh, a resident of the Quad Cities that I, I won't ask you about, but I think, but I think you're right. I mean, I, and I, I mean the, the players can deflect this question, and it probably makes sense, but surely they realize how unsettled this terrain is, right? I mean, yeah. surely Carolyn Wozniacki knows at every tournament, hey, you know, who the hell knows? Yeah, I, amazing. She's back on the list. I don't necessarily think of the French, but all this quiet momentum, not even quiet anymore, all these wins she's gathering, right, all this right. momentum, it wouldn't surprise me if she was able to get a Grand Slam title the next two years. It wouldn't surprise me if Pliskova is able to come through um, you know, maybe it's Australia next year on that really fast court. Um, it's coming, and we're going to have a lot of different winners these next couple of years as the pack kind of settles at the top. And maybe it's Vika getting back up there, um, but there's going to be a lot of opportunity. I like me. I like it. I don't. I don't mind it, especially when the men are so concentrated. I, I think yeah, it's a well, nice we'll contrast. See. We'll see nice if uh, Andy and uh, Novak get back to. Their levels. It's, it's, there's some great, great storylines, and luckily this year they're so far a lot more positive than they were last year in, in tennis in general. I'm with you. Can you believe, by the way, just last thought, we, we went half an hour, and that was the first reference to Novak Djokovic? <laughs> just, just a uh, well, just you'll an start observation. talking about him in the coming weeks. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, yep. that was, tell Ted Robinson you're, you're back on track. That was great. <laughs> that was fun. You're great. I will. Um, thanks, guys. Good luck. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks to our guest. That was the lovely, talented Lindsay Davenport. Always great talk and shop with her. She has a uh, great insight into the sport. She has a great way of conveying it. That's why you love her on Tennis Channel. That's why we love her here. Um, That was great. Our thanks to Lindsay, as always. Thanks to Jamie Lasanti, our trusty producer. Keep the suggestions coming. Uh, A lot of you had suggested Robbie Koenig, which was um, that worked out great. Lindsay, of course, has done this several times. She's always a pleasure to have. We'll have a new guest next week. We'll talk some more shop in seven days. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good week.